U.S. presidents appear on paper currency and coins from pennies to fifties, and when they leave office, presidents often become coin collectors too. Welcome to Copyright Clearance Center's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. Andrew Albanese, PW senior writer, joins me on the line as he does every Friday with the top stories in publishing. And welcome back to our program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. Well, we learned earlier this week that former President Barack Obama and his wife Michelle Obama have struck deals with Penguin Random House for their memoirs. And while the Obamas represent the blue side of the partisan divide, the story here is all about the green. Tell us about that. That's right. Penguin Random House has won the auction for books from former President Barack Obama and former First Lady Michelle Obama. We understand that the company has acquired world publication rights for two books to be written by the President and Mrs. Obama, respectively. And the news comes after we reported uh, just last week that proposals for both books have been making the rounds of New York publishers over the last month or so, and that executives at a number of houses had met with the Obamas to discuss a possible deal. Now, Penguin Random House is not disclosing the terms of the agreement, but a report in the Financial Times had the package going for 60 to $65 million. Uh, but those figures, I should note, are substantially higher than the figures that we'd heard at Publishers Weekly. One high-ranking executive who'd been in on the negotiations told PW last week that he thought the combined package for both books would be around 30 to $35 million. But whether it's $30 million or whether it's $60 million, those advances are well above what such memoirs you usually draw. Uh, our listeners may remember that Bill Clinton got about $15 million from Knopf for his 2004 tome, My Life, and Crown paid about $10 million for George W. Bush's 2010 memoir, Decision Points. While many publication details have yet to be released, rumor publication is set for fall of 2018, and Penguin Random House said that it's going to donate a million books in the Obama name to First Book, uh, a Penguin Random House nonprofit partner and the Washington, D.C.-based partner for the 2016 White House Digital Education Initiative called Open eBooks. Uh, in addition, the Obamas also plan to donate a significant portion of their author proceeds to charity, including the Obama Foundation. All right. So, Andrew, do these presidential memoirs ever really justify their presidential sweet size advances? <laughs> well, that's really the question. And the answer is, you know, we don't really know because we never get to see the complete terms of the deals. Uh, or really, we don't know how these books ever really perform. Uh, but the honest answer is, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, in terms of earning out the advance, as we do in traditional publishing, the answer is no. All the metrics we do see would suggest that presidential memoirs never really come close to selling enough copies to to be profitable on that basis alone. But that doesn't mean that they're not worth doing, and that doesn't mean that they don't make money. Uh, and I would point to the charity benefits of the Obama deal as an example. They would seem to actually justify the large advances, you know, because we don't know how much of the Penguin Random House payments can be, for example, classified as charitable contributions and therefore able to be written off on taxes. So in terms of the advances, the size of the advances for presidential memoirs representing the demand for these books, I would say no. The numbers don't don't make sense. Uh, but these books don't follow the normal author-publisher calculus here. Uh, that said, I think the Obama books actually have a chance of doing very, very well. So what do you think makes uh, the president's memoir different from Bill Clinton's or George Bush's? I mean, you're suggesting he may be in a different class. 
Yeah, well, you know, there's the obvious thing, which is that he's uh, the first African-American president. And I think that's a fascinating subject matter right there. Uh, but there's also his time in office, which was somewhat eventful, you might say. Uh, he could shed a lot of light on the, the circumstances which he faced when he came to office, the, the financial crisis, the wars, uh, and the behind-the-scenes uh, wrangling of the Affordable Care Act, which is still going to be very much in the news, I would imagine, over the next few years. Uh, but, you know, you knew I'd have to work in Donald Trump somehow into, into our podcast today. And I think what really augurs well for President Obama's book is Trump, our current president, uh, which to say it politely, uh, Trump is an unusual president. He's off to an unusual start in his administration. You know, for example, just this week, we learned that President Obama's administration was apparently preserving evidence of the Russian ties to Trump's campaign. And we know that the president has a lot to say about, or President Obama, I should say, has a lot to say about how the 2016 campaign all went down. Uh, but let's put it this way. Take a note of the pub date that was announced from Penguin Random House. Fall 2018. Hmm. I wonder what's going on in the fall of 2018. Oh, yeah, the midterm elections. So mark your calendars, folks. President Obama is set to drop his memoir, a $60 million, $30 million memoir, whatever it is, right in the middle of what I'm going to go out on a limb here and say right in the middle of what's going to be a very, very intense political atmosphere. All right. And when we come back, we light the candles on a publisher's birthday cake. But don't get too close. The heat will get to you. I'm Chris Keneally. You're listening to Beyond the Book. Publishers Weekly Radio has the very best in book talk directly from New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. Join us every Friday for a full hour of exciting author interviews, best-selling books, and expert reports on the nuts and bolts of publishing. Every week, we make sure that you have the inside story of your favorite story. Take a listen at PublishersWeekly.com slash PWRadio. I'm Chris Keneally, and we're in the middle of our regular Friday call to Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly senior writer, catching up on the latest publishing industry news. And at the PW office, Andrew, you're sending a birthday card to HarperCollins, who are marking the company's 200 years in business. Yeah, really remarkable, isn't it? You know, happy 200 years for what started out as Harper and Brothers. And in Monday's issue, we're going to have a look at how one of the big five publishers over two centuries got so big. And it's not a corporate story. I should, should tell readers that, for example, uh, it, it's really a cultural story. Uh, the story really looks at how Harper Brothers built their businesses on things like uh, prepackaged libraries, which enabled readers to amass an entire library uh, instead of just buying a single ebook, or excuse me, a single book, I should say. Uh, and this at a time when, you know, there weren't like a lot of bookstores down in the country, right? As new settlements were springing up and expanding across the U.S. frontier, Harper Brothers distributed more than 600,000 school district libraries between 1836 and 1855. So they really were forerunners when it comes to getting books into the hands of schools back in the 19th century. Uh, and always looking for ways to reach more readers with less expensive publications. In 1850, uh, the Harper Brothers introduced the concept of the modern literary magazine with Harper's New Monthly. Harper's actually printed a chapter of Herman Melville's Moby Dick in October 1851 to promote the forthcoming novel. Uh, and Harper periodicals were the first to serialize uh, Charles Dickens, Anthony Trollope, Henry James, Mark Twain. Uh, and the first issue of Harper's Weekly, I think, launched 
published in 1857. I think that's right. The Harper's Weekly magazine as we now know it today. So there's plenty more to tick off here. Uh, but you want to check out the piece in Monday's issue. And I'll leave it just by saying happy birthday to HarperCollins. Well, indeed. Well, happy birthday to HarperCollins for everyone here at Beyond the Book. And you and I will be both heading off to London, as will many of our listeners, for the London Book Fair, which comes a month earlier than it usually does. We'll be uh, all in uh, the capital of the United Kingdom, the week of March 13th. There's a lot of uh, programming, a lot of meetings, no doubt, and a lot of activity around the book fair itself, including this year's Charles Clark Lecture. Tell us about that. Yeah, so we're going to have a chance to talk about London before we actually get on a plane and go sometime next week. I thought maybe we would start looking at a couple of these great sessions and things that we're going to be looking forward to there. And the Clark Lecture is really one that I'm looking forward to this year. Uh, the Clark Lecture has been around for, I want to say, the better part of 10 years. And it looks at really interesting, often copyright issues. But this year's kind of a departure of sorts. This year's Clark Lecture is uh, billed as a debate between Judge Pierre Laval, who many of our listeners will know is America's foremost legal architect of fair use, and who recently wrote the Second Circuit decision in the Google case. Uh, and on the other side will be John Baumgarten, who's a longtime intellectual property attorney and a former general counsel for the U.S. Copyright Office. Uh, you want to mark your calendars. That event is set to run from 4 to 6.30 p.m. in the Olympia Conference Center. So if you're there in London on Wednesday, March 15th from 4 to 6.30, you'll want to check out the Clark Lecture this year. It should be fascinating. Uh, now, that said, I really don't expect it to be that much of a debate. Uh, I kind of know where Mr. Uh, Baumgarten comes down on stuff, and it's really squarely in support of the content industries. Uh, at last year's London Book Fair, he actually spoke at the IPA Congress, uh, which was in London, uh, and somewhat almost alarmist tones, I would say, at times, of what he sees as the expansion of fair use. And indeed, that really is a theme that I see. I think we're going to see pick up steam as copyright reform inches forward in the U.S., that the courts in the U.S. are enabling a shift in power from content creators over to the tech industry. But I'm a pretty firm believer that copyright's main constituency, as I think the Constitution makes clear, is the public. And I expect Pierre Laval, from his longtime service on the bench and, and his scholarly writings on fair use, to offer a pretty robust defense for why copyright should not necessarily be rewritten to preserve content suppliers of the analog era and why fair use, even when applied for for-profit companies like Google, should remain a really vital part of our copyright laws. So I think it's going to be a fascinating debate slash lecture slash uh, event this year. And uh, who's the stronger party? We'll, we'll wait and see. You can read all about that in March 16th uh, in Publishers Weekly in the PW Daily there. But I look forward to seeing you in London, Chris. Indeed. And uh, that will be coming up very shortly. Indeed. In the meantime, though, Andrew Albanese, thanks for joining us, all of us on Beyond the Book. My pleasure, as always. At London Book Fair throughout the week of March 13th, Copyright Clearance Center presents a number of programs on publishing, rights, and technology, including Raiders of the Lost Content at the Leadoff Quantum Conference sponsored by Nielsen on Monday, March 13th. Carl Robinson of UK-based Ixis, a CCC subsidiary, will urge publishers to promote a positive content management culture. We can get smart about our content, he says, or we can watch the clutter accumulate. People lose time because they can't find stuff. So let's enable them to find stuff. Let's enable them then to do something interesting with it. Let's enable them to put things together, create relationships. That's about the management of the content. Where is it? What can I do with it? What rights do I have with it? Getting smart about content. Next on Beyond the Book.
Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center with subsidiaries Rights Direct in the Netherlands and Ixis in the United Kingdom. CCC is a global leader in content workflow, document delivery, text and data mining, and rights licensing technology. You can follow Beyond the Book on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and subscribe to the free podcast series on iTunes or at our website, beyondthebook.com. Our engineer and co-producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. I'm Christopher Keneally. Join us again soon on Beyond the Book.